Amen. And all of God's people together said, when I went to seminary, they told me right off the bat that I was going to have to take Hebrew. It scared me to death because I don't do very well with English. I mean, I struggle in one language, much less two, so I can really butcher two different languages. But I'll tell you this, and Brother Wes has just brought it out, that Hebrew word for follow is pursue. And I love that picture. You know, all of my life, I read Psalm 23, this shepherd psalm, with a real sense uh, of, of just cuteness. I had this picture of Andy and Opie going down to the fishing hole and a little lop-eared beagle following, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall just trail along. That's not the picture at all. The picture is a tiger that is starving to death that is chasing down prey. I love this picture that E.V. Hill uh, painted. He was one of my favorite preachers, and he called goodness and mercy the shepherd's watchdogs. He said, God's goodness and his mercy are constantly bringing us into the fold. And I just love that picture. And if you want to tie it to something that'll bless you, go to Psalm, don't turn there, but Psalm 4610 you're familiar with, be still and know that I'm God. Now you need to know this about your pastor. If something is chasing me, you better know that the last thing I'm going to do is be still. I'm going to run. And you need to know this, if you see me running, you probably ought to run too because something big and bad and ugly is coming. But God's goodness and his mercy are running after us. They're chasing after us. They are pursuing us. And if you'll slow down, if you'll be still, the goodness of God will swallow you up. Amen? Well, we come today to the very uh, next of our I am statements of Jesus. We are walking through Jesus in his own words. And we're looking at the fourth of these statements. And as we look at this together, I just want to review. We have looked at Jesus as the bread of life. We talked about Jesus being the sustenance of our lives. And then we looked at Jesus being the light of the world. And then last week we talked about from John 10 where he said, I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the only way for you to enter into salvation. What a beautiful picture. And today I want to invite your attention back to John chapter 10. We're going to look there again at another one of Jesus' I am statements. So John chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me, and we're going to look beginning in verse 11. And I know we've done a lot of up and down this morning, but would you stand together with me to honor the reading of the word of God? John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold and I must bring them also. Aren't you glad he said that? Folks, that's you and me. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one Shepherd, Let's pray together, and then we'll look together at this powerful claim of Jesus, namely, I am 
the good shepherd. Father, I pray that you truly would bless us today with understanding as we consider this idea that you are a God who shepherds his people. Thank you for this bold declaration that helps us to see in uh, Scripture who you are. I pray that you would use it mightily in our lives today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people together said, amen. You may be seated. Let me just kind of on the outset say this. Our aim for this series is for us together to encounter the God of the Bible, and our desire is to see him as he is. And as we see him for who he is, we will become more and more the kind of people he has called us to be. And Jesus' statements here, these seven statements of I am, focus our attention and our hearts on his character, on his nature, and his divine purpose. When Jesus said, I am, he was invoking that divine name that God gave to Moses, that covenant name there at the burning bush. And so as we look at this, these are powerful statements. He's not just giving us metaphors and analogies. He is leading us forward. And here Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Folks, don't pass this one up too quickly. The idea that Jesus is our shepherd, that he watches over, that he cares for, that he nurtures, that he guards and he guides and he leads and he loves is incredible. I think there's a problem, though, for all of us uh, that, that we sentimentalize animals. We'll get to that in a moment, but think about this with me. The idea of shepherding runs all throughout Scripture, and especially the fact that God acts as and reveals himself to be a shepherd from beginning to end. And we don't have a lot of time here. This could be a series in itself, but let me just show you a few places. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, all of them identified as what? Okay, this is going to be a long day, folks. What are we talking about? What did Jesus say? I am the good so Abraham, Moses, David, Jacob, they were shepherds. In Genesis 48, 15, I love this, Jacob is speaking and he boldly proclaims as he's on his deathbed praying over his sons, he says, may the God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this very day, may he bless you. I love that. God is using Jacob to bless his sons. I, I want to say a word. I'm so thankful for our trail men. That's what we call our trail life troop. I'm thankful that these young men got to look, these that have served so valiantly and faithfully as veterans in the eye and say thank you and give them that coin. I pray that our church would constantly reach toward blessing others. But Jacob is telling them, uh, his boys on his deathbed, God has been faithful. Has God been faithful to you? If God's been faithful to you, you better share that with the next generation. We talk about legacy in our church a lot, about making disciples among the next generation. Well, that's exactly what we see. And I love that. Jacob was saying, God has been my shepherd. It was personal. Don't just send your kids to church. Don't let somebody else take them to church. And don't expect the church to raise your kids to know and love Jesus. We'll come alongside you. We have preschool and children and youth and college ministries. We love the next generation. We are passionate about reaching the next generation. But we want to partner with parents and grandparents who would say, God is my shepherd. That's what Jacob did. 
is that's at the beginning. If you go to the end in Revelation 7, 17, all of the saints that come out of the tribulation are brought before God. And John says something powerful. He says, for the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and he shall guide them into springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when Peter was being restored into a call of ministry, Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord. And he said, feed my sheep. He called him to this task of being a shepherd of sheep. And Peter understood that. As we read First and Second Peter, he talks about the great high priest Jesus and our great shepherd that will come again for us but he talked to the sheep and I imagine he remembered and recalled Jesus words later in this chapter where Jesus said my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they shall never perish now for our time today I want to invite you to do something if you've got a bible with you turn to the old testament book of Micah the Old Testament book of Micah. And as you look in the, the Old Testament, we're gonna use this as an illustration for this principle that Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, if you're struggling to find Micah, go to the table of contents. If you need to, it's on page 750 if your Bible's exactly like mine. Otherwise, you're on your own to find this tiny little minor prophet with a major message. Micah is probably fairly um, well uh, hidden to most of us. Many of us don't know a whole lot about Micah, but we're going to look at this together in, in a moment. Micah chapter 5, verse 4. Micah 5, 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. I want you to write this statement down because everybody needs to hear this. This is really central to our message. The God of the Bible is the God who shepherds his people. Write that down if you're taking notes. And, and if you're not actively taking notes in this, would you just say that statement with me? Let's say it together. The God of the Bible is the God who shepherds his people. Now, I've said it a moment ago. When we look at this imagery of shepherds and sheep, you and I have a problem. And here's our problem. Animals make us very sentimental, don't they? We look at them in a very unique way. If you've got, how many of you got pets that live in your house? If you've got pet, how many of you say, nope, I don't want any pets in my house? There's a few of y'all, we're gonna pray for you. Now I'm, but think about this. We have a remarkable capacity to project on animals an image that's far from reality. Let me illustrate it. Take a bear, for example. There are many, many children in the world that have a real fear of the dark, and they have a very hard time going to sleep. And so what do we do to comfort them in their time of tribulation each and every bed night, uh, bedtime? We put a bear in their bed. How much sense does that make? I mean, we, we are pretty far from reality. In fact, let's think about it. What does a bear actually bring to mind? Sleep tight, kiddos. We put a bear in their bed. How strange. The same is true for sheep. We have a sentimentality about sheep. We think they're white and cute 
and cut. I'll go ahead and just let you go ahead and get it out of the way. I know some of you are going, oh. Pretty cute, huh? If you had a sheep sleeping in your bedroom, you would have a problem. <laughs> Number one, you would be run out of the place by the smell alone. Have you ever seen a sheep being sheared? It is not a pretty sight. They are matted and muddy and dirty and their legs are all sprawled out and they are not cuddly. We think they're cuddly and cute. There's probably not another living creature on the planet that is less cuddly than a sheep. I mean, they're just gross at times. Now, this will bless you. What does God call us over and over and over again in the Bible? <laughs> sheep. When God calls us the flock of God, as he calls us sheep, it's not very flattering. Smelly, dirty, defenseless, lacking the capacity for independent thought. I mean, they'll wander off and just cluelessly find themselves in harm's way. And so we have a very unrealistic view of sheep. We have a very unrealistic view of shepherds. Think about this with me. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of a shepherd, but the, the common image for us is it's an older man. He's got a graying beard. He's mild-mannered and soft-spoken. He's got long, flowing robes. He has a staff in his hand. But Jesus told us here that we just read a moment ago in John, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In biblical times, the shepherd was the only defense that a sheep had. And so he would rise up with great courage and he would defend the sheep. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you, and let me talk to the men for a second. Men, when you were a kid, how many of you at some point aspired to be a fireman? Anybody? That's kind of a common thing. I want to be a fireman. I, ladies, let me include you. To Any of y'all want to be firewomen? I'm not sure how you say that. But guys, we would go on a school field trip to the fire hall. And when we got there, I was like, this is cool. They get to slide down the pole. They get to drive that cool truck. They get to wear that funky hat. I mean, they get to do all kinds of cool stuff. Mom, dad, I want to be a fireman. But as we grow up, we understand that being a fireman takes an immense amount of courage. Firemen run into buildings that other people run out of. Firemen put themselves in extreme danger, extreme heat, extreme pressure. It's really a job for heroes only. And so a lot of people say as a kid, I want to be a fireman or an astronaut or whatever, but you come to the reality of what a fireman is and what a fireman does, and you know, I'm just not sure that that's what I'm cut out for. Does that make sense? It's similar to the idea of a shepherd. You think of a shepherd holding this cuddly, cute, adorable sheep, but the Bible says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Being a shepherd required courage. Think back with me for a minute to King David. King David was a shepherd. He began his career not as a king, but as a shepherd boy. And I, I want you to go back in your mind with this. You may want to jot down 1 Samuel 17. You know the story, perhaps, but the, the armies of Israel were encamped on one side. The armies of the Philistines were on the other. And there was a champion of the Philistines named Goliath, a massive man, a giant of a man. And he taunted the armies of Israel. He mocked them. He made fun of their God. And at this point, David is a shepherd out in the field. 
His father, Jesse, sent him to the front lines to take his older brother some food. And when he got there, he heard the rattle of the armor as the giant from Gath stood out and mocked the armies of God and the God of those armies. And David said, what will be done for the man that kills that giant? You see, the way that worked is one champion would fight another champion and the winner takes all. And everybody on the side of Israel was fearful. They were frightened in the sight of this giant. But David didn't look at the size of the giant. He looked at the size of his God. And he said, my God is able to take care of this situation. And it's an interesting thing that unfolds. David says, verse 32 in 1 Samuel 17, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go to fight him. And Saul responds, and he says, don't be ridiculous. There is no way you can fight this man. You are only a boy, and he's been a warrior since he was a boy. And listen to these words in 1 Samuel 17, 34. Your servant has been doing what? Read it. Keeping his father's sheep. Now, let me read the rest. When a lion uh, or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue it from the mouth of the lion. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too because he has defied the armies of the living God. Let me read that first statement again. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. That's a statement worthy of respect. I don't want you to have this nice picture of a sentimental shepherd that is soft-spoken. This is a young boy with unbelievable courage. He would chase after a lion. He would chase after a bear that had a sheep in its mouth, and he would club it. No guns, just David face-to-face with a sling or a club, and he would defend the life of the sheep. Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep. Don't think of a shepherd as meek and mild. Think of a shepherd as courageous. Think of a shepherd as powerful. Jesus told us in our first text, and again, we're gonna come to Micah, but Jesus told us that if it's a hired hand, when the wolf comes, they check out. (laughs) I don't get paid enough to stand between a wolf and a sheep. I don't care about those smelly sheep. I'm just here for a paycheck. They don't pay me enough for that. It's easy to find a shepherd like that. Let's go to Micah's prophecy. Let's talk about it. Now, how many of you know anything about Micah? See, if you, I'm not going to call on you. You can raise your hand. Most of you probably know Micah 6, 8. Do justly, love mercy, Walk humbly with your God. Fits great on a bumper sticker. Fits good on a coffee mug. That's what we know about Micah. Some of you probably know from Micah chapter 5, there's a reference to Bethlehem. So you go, oh, wait a minute. I got that one at a Christmas service. I remember 700 years before Jesus shows up, Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem. Got it. I know that one, Pastor. Well, I want us to connect some dots. And as we do, we'll begin to see very powerfully this notion. See, In Micah 5, it says, the ruler who comes from Bethlehem will shepherd his flock. But we need to take a step back. So everybody look this way. Church family, one of the most important things that we can do uh, when we study the Bible is to look at the text and ask, what did it mean to the original hearers? 
Sometimes we start with this question, what does this mean to you? And the problem with that question is very, very problematic. It's very dangerous. I hear it in Sunday school classes at times in other churches. It doesn't happen here because y'all are much more astute than that. But have you ever seen somebody read a passage of scripture and then say, what does this mean to you? You ever heard that? That is dangerous because what you're basing now your opinion on is the Bible becomes inspiration for your thoughts. Well, you can do that with a JCPenney catalog. It can be any source. And you're not staking your life on the Bible. You're staking it on the inspiration of what you think. We need to be observant Bible scholars, Bible students. We need to look and say, what does it mean to them and what does it say to us? Let me put those two questions up. Faithful Bible study, ask these two questions. What did it mean to them and what does it say to us? So here's where I want you to go with me. When you hear Bethlehem, what do you think? The birth of Jesus. If you are... Hearing Micah speak these words about Bethlehem 700 years before Jesus is born, are you thinking about Jesus being born? No, because you don't know anything about Jesus 700 years before Jesus. So we have to ask the question, what did it mean to the first hearers? What did it mean when they first heard it? And if we ask what it means to us, then it becomes very dangerous because any book will do. You're not living on the truth of God's word, but on the inspiration of your own thoughts, and that will never sustain you. We need to ask, what did it mean to these folks? So let me write that question down. First question I want us to ask and answer. We're going to ask three questions. What did it mean for them? Now we'll look together at Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. Don't run past. Everybody stay with me. What is he saying? An enemy is going to come and attack you, and they're not just going to surround the city. They're going to breach the walls, and they're not just going to come in the city. They're going to come in the palace, and they're not just going to come in the palace. They're going to walk right up to the king and slap him in the face. I mean, you think about a disgraceful picture. An enemy will come and overtake you to the point that he will absolutely strike the king in the face. Micah is telling them about a time in the future where this will happen. A strong enemy will come and slap the king in the face. If you were to go to 2 Kings 25, don't go there. This is when it happened. A hundred years after Micah said this, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came in and King Zedekiah tried to get away, but he was captured and this is exactly what happened. So God gave Micah a picture. You're going to be attacked. So if you and I lived in Micah's day, we're not thinking about little town of Bethlehem. We're reading these words and he's saying, you better recognize that you're going to come under attack. But look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come to you on my behalf. We think of Bethlehem, we think of the birth of Christ. They think of Bethlehem and they think of David. David was the king, the shepherd king. He had boldly led the people. They loved 
King David. King David had led them fiercely and mightily in conquest. And he was born in Bethlehem. We have a picture of the city of David. And Micah is writing to the people and he's telling them very, very pointedly, God's going to give you another David. In verse 3, something interesting. Read it with me or look at it. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Wait, what? Pastor, hang on. So God is going to give us a leader. He's going to rescue us from this horrible attack that happens, and he's going to send us a shepherd king like David. Yes, but first we'll be abandoned? That doesn't make any sense. Actually, folks, it does. And I want you to go with me for these next few moments. Most people don't want a shepherd. You ever thought about that? You want to call the shots of your own life. You want to make decisions on your own. You want to be independent, even of God. You think, I've got my own resources. I've got my own ability to network and figure things out. I can buy my way out or talk my way out or figure my way out of this. But you need to recognize that a lot of folks live that way. There are a lot of people that know Jesus is a shepherd, but they say, I've got my own resources. I've said it this way. Sometimes it's easier for me to talk to other people than it is to pray to God. You ever brought a problem up and you just said, you know what, I'll just begin to tell it to other people rather than praying about it. And this is how Israel was for centuries. Israel had replaced God with all of these substitutes, idols. Even their religious activity could go on without ever really drawing close to Yahweh. What does that mean for us today? There are a whole lot of people that live today religious lives, but not connected to God. They go through the motions of church, but they don't really have a genuine relationship as shepherd and sheep. And so here's what God says I'm going to do. I will abandon Israel until the one who is in labor is ready to give birth. And you say, well, that doesn't seem very kind of God. Here's the reason for the abandoning. Those who have resisted the shepherd for so long will be ready to receive him when he comes. Maybe you can see God tracing that out in your life. Have you ever just kind of rocked along and life was okay and then you hit a hard spot? And when you hit a hard spot and ended up on your back, you looked up and you said, oh God, help. Anybody? That's like six of us, good. Most of you are just doing fine. Have you ever come to a hard place and you said, I need God, yes or no? Then we're on good place. As we think about this, when you come to those places, you find yourself needing him and you're drawn to him in difficulty and maybe even cry out, thank God for it. Thank God for it, why? Because our struggles and our pain and our plight turn our hearts to God, who is our good shepherd. So here's the prophecy. Here's the prophecy. A strong enemy is going to come against you. And God is going to give you another David. And if we read a little further, it'll say, and you will prevail. So as you think about this notion, if you were living 700 years before Jesus, you would simply say, God, Yahweh, is leading us forward and he's going to bring to us another David, one out of Bethlehem, who will strike our enemies down and will give to us comfort and peace again. I wish I had time to really invest. In verse 5, he talks about seven shepherds and eight leaders, and they rise up against the enemy. 
I love this. It's not just that the Messiah triumphs, but the people triumph. He and they. You cannot separate Christ from his people. They share in his victory. He'll lead them into triumph. His victory becomes their victory. And so we find God's people described in a a, a remarkable way. They were like sheep that have been vulnerable and harassed and harried without a shepherd. And now in the strength of a shepherd king, they become like lions. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, the remnant left in Israel will take their place among the nations. They will be like a what? Now, can you think of anything probably more polar opposite than a little defenseless sheep than a lion? No. They will become like lions among the animals of the forest, like a strong young lion among the flocks of sheep and goats. So that's the message as they heard it. A strong enemy will come. God will send you another David and you will overcome your enemies. Question number two, how is this fulfilled in Jesus? How is this fulfilled in Jesus? You see, you and I hear this 2,000 years later. We hear it from a totally different perspective. Let's take a look for just a moment at the glory of Jesus, our shepherd king. Verse two said that a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past. I love this. It literally means from eternity past. The shepherd king who brings hope to God's people is not just from the ancient line of David. No, he is from eternity past. I think we could kind of camp out there. I just imagine them talking to Jesus at some point in his life and saying, son, how old are you? And he'd say, well, on my mother's side, 12, when he was in the temple. Oh, but on my father's side, I am ageless from eternity to eternity, the alpha and the omega. Son, where did you come from? Well, on my mother's side, a little village called Nazareth. Oh, but on my father's side, I left the throne room of glory where I have spent all of eternity with the worship of the angels because he is God. And when Jesus said, I am, over and over again, he was claiming his rightful place of divinity. David was the greatest thing, king the people could think of, but he had his own sins and his problems. Uh, can I just tell you this? You will never find a shepherd, an under-shepherd without problems. Everything you think a shepherd ought to be, he'll have his own struggles, his own battles. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is a greater shepherd than David. Amen? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is a greater shepherd than Scott Hanbury or any other pastor that you could ever have or any other shepherd that could guide your soul. Other shepherds will disappoint you, but those, the Bible says, that place their trust in Christ will never be put to shame. Jesus will not disappoint you. He will not let you down. He will not lead you astray. Christ is the strong shepherd in whom you must place your trust. And in verse 4, it says that he would lead his flock in the strength of the Lord. Let me just kind of focus here. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the arm of the Lord revealed. Jesus is the hope of the hopeless. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the door of the sheepfold. He is the promised Messiah, the good news of the gospel. David could save a sheep from a bear or from a lion, but Jesus can save your soul from hell. 
Jesus can save you from the darkness of despair. Jesus can pull you out of slavery to sin and give you forgiveness and freedom. Jesus can save you from the second death and a lost eternity. Not only can he save you, but he can sustain you. The Bible says that he would stand strong in the strength of the Lord and as an active guiding shepherd would lead you into a place of fulfillment. Oh, I love this picture. He is the majesty of the name of God and he's able to keep you as your shepherd. Listen to me, church. As your shepherd, Jesus is able to keep you until the day that the Bible describes as this. There's a day that he will present you faultless before the Father. I have a hard time seeing myself as faultless. Anybody else? On the last day, the shepherd who has brought you through every trial and every trouble in your life will present you without fault and with great joy in the presence of the Lord. And the Bible says that his glory will be known throughout the earth. He is the good shepherd. He will be highly honored around the world. Hear that. Jesus will be highly honored around the world. What was the last glimpse that we had of Christ? It was a slap in the face as king as he was nailed to the cross. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Oh, but in the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of a lamb who has been slain. And this lamb who has been slain has the appearance of a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The world around us looks for a world without Christ, but it ain't gonna happen because the gospel is true. And the lion of the tribe of Judah will come and everyone will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So what did they hear? God's going to abandon us for a time but deliver us. What do we hear? God has sent the good shepherd Jesus, he is the long-awaited one. Third question, what does this mean for us today? So if we've asked, what did they hear and what does it mean? What did it mean to them? What does it mean to us? Let me ask you very pointedly, if you are a Christian here today, what is your position? Has a strong enemy come against you? Do you face an enemy who lays siege to your life with the intent of breaking down your defenses, slapping you in the face, leading you away in humiliation? Or, let me give you another option, or are you an overcomer with the life of a lion inside of you? Are you placed in a position to prevail over your enemy? Dear precious Hardy Street, the answer is yes and yes. The New Testament says that we have a great enemy and our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We tend to think people are our problem, but that's not the struggle. It's an array of darkness. The enemy has come to steal and to kill and destroy. He has come against every single believer. We are in a position of defenselessness unless we have a shepherd. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
The Bible doesn't say he steals, kills, and destroys. It says he comes to steal. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. And he'll do it if you ain't got no shepherd. I have a good shepherd named Jesus who said, I lay down my life for my sheep. And the enemy of death that came against me was destroyed at the cross and at the tomb. A bloody cross and an empty tomb stand as my defense. And now I can say with victory, I have the heart of a lion in me because the Spirit of God indwells me. We have the presence of Christ with us, the Spirit of Christ within us, and the armor of Christ about us, and you have a shepherd. Now, we still live in the presence of our enemies. Anybody realize that? We're living in a broken, messed up world. You live in the presence of your enemy, but it was never put more beautifully than this. And I'm almost done. You need to stick with me on this though. David, that shepherd king who said the Lord is my shepherd, wrote it more beautifully perhaps than anybody else in Psalm 23, Brother West. You know what he said? My God, my shepherd prepares a table for me in the presence of who? My enemies. Wow, what a picture. Go there with me for a moment. Imagine in your sanctified imagination a, a great banquet hall in the palace, a vast banquet in the palace of a king. And the king is dressed in common clothes, he's dressed in servant clothes. And he is, this king is preparing the table. This king is running in and out of the dining hall and out of the supply closet. And he is setting every single place setting. Place by place, setting the table, forks and knives and spoons and plates and goblets, all of the arrangements in and out. And he will not allow us to help. No, we stand back and we watch the king dressed in common clothes in and out of the dining room. All of us are gathered there, not yet seated, and we're watching the activity of the king dressed in servants' clothes preparing a banquet. The problem is that our enemies are there too, and they're watching all of this. He prepares a table before me in the presence of who? My enemies. One of the enemies in the corner is named fear. And the enemy of fear says, there's no place at this table for you. Another one of those enemies is failure. And he says, there's no place at this table for you. What have you done in your worthless life to ever deserve to be seated at that table? One of the enemies is called doubt. And you say, is there really ever going to be a banquet? Is this actually going to happen? The enemies are too strong. They'll never let the king give this banquet. One of the enemies is called guilt, and then another shame, and then one regret. How can you possibly expect to sit at this banquet table, look at all the things that you've done? The king couldn't possibly accept you and allow you to join in this table. Oh, but when the king walks into the dining room, he sees us surrounded by our enemies and he allows it to be so. They're laughing at us and they're mocking us and they're taunting us. But when he comes back, he says, do not fear their mockery. I am preparing this table for you. Already you are a child of the king. Already you are surrounded by his love. Already he is preparing a banquet for you. You're still in the presence of your enemies. You still hear their mocking and their laughing and their voices. You still suffer the indignity of their taunts and the pull of their temptations. But you know that your triumph 
has already begun. Why? Because you're watching the king set the table. And he promised that he would do so. If you today are in Jesus Christ over the noise of the voices that are in your world, you are able to say, I am a child of the King. I have by His mercy a place at this table. I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I belong to the shepherd King. My life is secure in His hand and there is nothing that you, enemy of God, can ever do to snatch me out of His hand. Why? He is my shepherd. Now, He's not going to set the table forever. There will be a time that the banquet is ready. And when the banquet is ready, the king will arrive in his royal robe and the trumpets will sound and he will enter into his banquet hall and all of his enemies will be scattered. No more laughing voices. No more doubt and fear. No more shame and regret. No more terrible darkness or debilitating wounds. No more any separation of any of those types. At Christ's coming, your triumph already begun will be complete. And here is a marvelous thing. If today you belong to Jesus Christ, you have an incredible gift, and that gift is this. You already know what the end of your life will look like. Amen? I mean, consider that. Your life will end with you standing in the presence of Jesus with your enemies gone. And you will stand ransomed, redeemed, healed, restored, forgiven, freed, filled with praise. Look at verse 9. The people of Israel will stand up to their foes and all their enemies will be wiped out. That's your future, Christian. Lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The God of the Bible is a God that shepherds his people. Be honest with yourself for a moment. Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? If you can, walk in victory even in the face of your enemies. And if you can't say that, then you find yourself today in a very defenseless hopeless place, but there never is hopelessness in the presence of the shepherd. He provides hope. You can come to Jesus today. You can be saved today. You can trust him for all eternity. That's the future of the believer. What's the future of all those that are enemies of God? We've said it. They are banished. They are gone from the presence of the banquet, from the presence of the king, from the presence of his splendor and glory and love and life. Today, if you need to be saved, trust Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to sing. I'm going to invite our musicians to come even now. And as they come, I want you to just be focused. We're going to sing. And as we sing, don't delay. You come. You step out from where you are. People let you out. And you come. We have encouragers. We, we call them encouragers. They're just prayer partners. They're members of our church that literally have just been trained to take God's word and share with you words of encouragement about how to be saved. 
and they'll pray for you. They won't hurt you. They won't embarrass you in any way. Nobody will. But in a discreet way, we'll simply pray with you. If you need prayer over any matter in your life, you come at the beginning of this song. I mean, when the first note is played, you step out and come, and our encouragers will be right over here. I can introduce you to one of them. Maybe the need of your life is to join our church. Your bulletin tells you the ways that you can unite with our fellowship, and so I would encourage you to do that. Let's all stand together. You let God have his way as we sing this brief song.